the Rolex work. Diamond ring work. Kiss stealing. Wheeling, dealing. Limousine riding. Jet flying. Son of a gun. And I'm having a hard time holding these alligators down. Now give me two claps and a Rick Flair. Woo! Good day and good night. Welcome to the High and Low Basketball Show. This is episode number 100 and nobody, a.k.a. episode number 164. I say nobody, not because of Bob Odenkirk's surprisingly iconic 2021 action film. Love that movie. But uh, because 64 is a jersey number every player in the history of the association has bypassed and left vacant for some reason. I mean, I could reverse it and name the episode after Bo Outlaw, but uh, I've done that before, and I think it's important to acknowledge the vacancy. I can put players on notice, let them know that this is a number you can claim. You can own it. You can be the best ever to wear it. It's yours. Anyway, welcome to the High and Low NBA show. My name is Ike Amechi. Around here, we live by principle, governed by the High and Low Lives of the World, which means we talk about basketball especially and specifically the NBA. And we talk about it at any time, anywhere, north, south, east, west, high and low. This week on the show, I'm solo. And I have an interesting topic to uh, bring to your ear holes. What did you say? The NBA and its relationship with Hollywood. I'm going to talk about how the movie industry has depicted basketball, the league, its players. You know, has it worked? In this age of IP where Barbie can get a movie a 30 year old game like tetris can get a movie you got a smartphone like blackberry that hasn't been relevant for years you got a movie so where does the nba fit into this puzzle you know these days hollywood doesn't like to take a chance on anything unless there's a pre-existing fan base what does that mean for the nba because there is a pre-existing fan base anyway stay tuned for all that before we lock in let me check in. Oh, hi. Thanks for checking in. I'm still a piece of garbage. Just a quick programming note for everyone. As you might have noticed, we rarely have episodes where you go, Mitch, Steven, Sean, and myself are here at the same time anymore. Part of that is by design. Um, it can be logistically challenging to get everyone to the table, but it's also an easier conversation with smaller numbers. I'm not saying we'll never do it again, but it's definitely not the norm. You'll still hear from from those guys, they're not going anywhere. Uh, Sean's still adjusting to life with a second kid, so he might not be around for a while, but who knows? He might surprise us one of these days. Uh, the other item to address is the solo episodes I've done. I've been testing out the waters with with the solo pods uh, to see how it all comes together because, you know, they're perfect for the off season. I just mentioned Hugo, Stephen, Mitch, Sean. Everyone has, has a life to live and why force a conversation about rumored trades and Ben Simmons' new girlfriend, which is what happens during the offseason. Instead, I'll bring more of these shorter, informative episodes about a wider variety of topics like basketball in Hollywood or the business of basketball or music-inspired episodes, you know, topics you won't hear on any other podcast. So look out for more of these during the summer. I may invite a guest here and there for one-on-one conversations, you know, just keeping it light entertaining for your listening pleasure week after week. Anyway, I appreciate your time this week. Thank you for joining me for another installment of the show. 
another week, another episode, more NBA soul, course, more high and low. This week in NBA history, there was an intervention. On July 10th, 1975, there was a whirlwind of negotiations, contracts, commissioner intervention. The basketball world stood on the edge of its collective seat as NBA commissioner Larry O'Brien wielded his authority to alter the destiny of a talented forward by the name of George McGinnis. It all began in 1973. At this point, George McGinnis was a star in the ABA, where he led the Indiana Pacers to the championship. He was named the ABA playoff MVP. He averaged 24 points, 12 rebounds. He led the Pacers to the second straight title. The following year, he averaged almost 30 a game, won ABA MVP, and averaged a near triple-double in the playoffs, leading the Pacers to another finals appearance where they would fall short. All this to say, George McGinnis was a stud, a star, a bona fide star. The Sixers secured his draft rights, selecting McGinnis with the 22nd pick in the 73 NBA draft. McGinnis, who had left college for the ABA after his sophomore year, he was in the middle of a contract with the Pacers, which would end in 1974. Now, in October of 74, the Sixers struck a deal with the Knicks and were prepared to send McGinnis and his draft rights to the Knicks. Granted, he signs with the Knicks before the agreed-upon deadline. Now, that was the stipulation. However, it all went sideways when McGinnis decided to stay with the Pacers and sign a new two-year deal with an $85,000 buyout clause. The buyout clause was exercised the following year and put McGinnis back in play for NBA teams. Now, because the deadline had passed, McGinnis' draft rights went back to Philly, but he wanted to play in New York. He saw more financial opportunity in New York, so to, to ensure he would be able to negotiate with any of the league's 18 franchises, McGinnis basically sued the NBA. The lawsuit was short-lived, uh, dropped a week later, just in time for him to sign a six-year, $2.4 million contract with his preferred team, the New York Knicks. A direct challenge to the league. NBA commission. Larry O'Brien was not happy with the situation, and in a bold move, he revoked the contract between McGinnis and the Knicks, and it sent shockwaves throughout the basketball community. Not only did he revoke the contract, he ordered the Knicks to forfeit a first-round pick in the 1976 draft, and if that wasn't enough, the Knicks had to reimburse the Sixers for all expenses pertaining to the situation, and to kick some dirt in the wound, the Sixers ended up signing George McGinnis to a six-year, $3.2 million contract anyway. Uh, so, I mean, the Knicks, they lost a lot in this situation. They lost McGinnis, the superstar they needed. They lost a draft pick and they lost some cash. In his three seasons with the Philadelphia 76ers, George McGinnis would go on to make the first team All-NBA in his first season as a Sixer, plus two All-Star selections, and he would help lead the Sixers to the 1977 NBA Finals, where they would, of course, lose to the Portland Trailblazers. Anyway, that's a little something for the NBA history nerds. Things are certainly happening in the NBA today, so let's talk about it. Let's talk about something important. This week, we have two listener questions to pull from the mailbag. Might as well, you know, got to fill the time. Uh, first question is from Laszlo in Burlington, Vermont. Shout out to Burlington, Vermont. What's the story behind the Ric Flair woo 
in your intro? Now, first of all, thank you for the great question, Laszlo. Uh, I guess we haven't shared this since the uh, since the early days of the podcast. Uh, newer listeners wouldn't know, and uh, yeah, there really isn't much to it. I'm just trying to figure out how to answer this one in real time. So I grew up watching wrestling. You know, I'm sure that's obvious with the number of references I make. Uh, Hugo makes a lot of wrestling references on the show. I think he makes more than me. Anyway, who's who's counting? Uh, Ric Flair is considered to be one of the greatest wrestling entertainers of all time. 16-time world champion. Wrestlers are known for cutting promos on a mic. That's what they call it, cutting promos. They're basically just talking and chirping about their opponents while a guy half their size holds a mic to their face. Actually, NBA players need to take note from these guys. If NBA players cut promos like wrestlers, then the NBA would be a thousand times more more entertaining. You probably get a lot more casuals watching the NBA. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I digress. Basically, Ric Flair is one of the greatest on the mic. You know, there's the famous line he would say to describe himself. Not just stealing, wheeling, dealing, limousine riding, jet flying, son of a gun. Uh, and then he would cap it off with a woo. woo. And that woo is symbolic of the energy and excellence I've always wanted to bring to this show or wanted this show to represent. You know, it sets the tone just like Ric Flair would. Plus, the guys from North Carolina, home state, of another goat you heard me shout out to the nature boy shout out to rick flair and shout out to laszlo for a great question uh we're gonna move on to the next one uh this question is from shango in shreveport louisiana my guy in the bayou actually i'm not sure if shreveport is considered the bayou but anyway you know what i'm saying (laughs) anyway love this question shango let me say this nba summer league is decent basketball to watch at a time when NBA fans are starving for it. But that's it. You know, it's something to fill in the time. If you want to consider the NBA this this great landscape, then the offseason would be the desert region of that landscape. I don't take the games and the results too seriously. These, I don't know, there's a tendency to overhype good performances in the summer league and people tend to shame bad to average ones depending on the status of the player. Victor Wembanyama's stat lines during summer league won't mean a thing come October. Let's just be honest. You know, Brandon Miller's numbers are meaningless compared to the numbers he'll put up mid-season. The same can be said about Scoot Henderson and any of the other top prospects. You know, I mean, Scoot Henderson is out for the rest of summer league with a quote-unquote shoulder injury. But I digress. Take a look at two-time MVP and NBA Finals MVP Nikola Jokic's uh, summer league numbers back in 2015. He averaged eight and six. Denver's leading scorer at that time was Oleksii Petrov. He averaged 21 a game. Who the hell is that? Exactly. Who? Who is that? Right? Mr. Slow-Mo himself, Kyle Anderson, was summer league MVP that year. He averaged 21 a game as well. Basically, it meant nothing. Respectfully, of course. You know, these are glorified house leagues. Televised scrimmages. The league has turned into a bit of a cash cow. And we take it in. We enjoy it. You know, we enjoy the fact that there's basketball on TV in July. That's great. All right. Now, the tournament we should really pay attention to and take seriously 
is the midseason tournament for the NBA Cup. And that starts in late November, November 28th. This was recently announced. You can find it on NBA.com or you can find the information on NBA.com. Now, as it states, all 30 teams are placed in groups of five based on their win-loss record from the previous season. Uh, It looks like each team will play four group play games on what the league calls tournament nights. So they'll play each other. They'll play each of the four teams in their group, the teams with the best records from each group, plus two wild cards. They all advance to the knockout rounds, which will be single elimination to the very end of the championship game. And apparently all games count towards regular season records, except the final game. So there are stakes. Honestly, this should be fun. I think I'm going to enjoy this. Let's give it a chance. Let's give it a chance. Uh, Anyway, I'm digressing a bit. Thank you for your question, Shango. Appreciate you. A quick reminder to High and Low Lives, if you want to leave us a question for us to answer on the show, send a DM on TikTok at More High and Low. You can send a DM on Instagram at Get High and Low. Links are in the show notes. Time for us to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to examine the NBA's relationship with Hollywood, with the movies. We'll be right back with More High and Low. This moment is brought to you by High and Low listeners. This week on the High and Low NBA show, listeners were asked to share their top five NBA rookies to watch. We heard from Bradley in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Shout out to everyone in Cambridge. All right, well, they, well thanks. Thanks for that. Bradley shared his opinions, starting with number five, Marquis Noel in Toronto, the Fred Van Vliet replacement the Raptors desperately need. Number four is the Houston Rockets' Amen Thompson. Number three is Portland's Scoot Henderson. He has free reign of the offense, with Damian Lillard out of the way. Number two is Chet Holmgren of the OKC Thunder. Chet is getting a second chance to make a first rookie impression this year due to injury, just like Ben Simmons and Blake Griffin. According to Bradley, the number one NBA rookie to watch is Victor Wembenyama. Everyone will be watching. Thank you for sharing this great list, Bradley. Let's get back to the program. And I am back. This is High and Low. I'm Ike Amechi. The marriage between basketball and Hollywood can be considered an intricate dance of art and athleticism where the bright lights and drama of the game intersect with the allure of the big screen. Now, over the years, we've witnessed a plethora of cinematic endeavors that feature and celebrate the spirit and glory of the game. You know, from the iconic basketball-driven narratives of White Man Can't Jump, Hoosiers, Coach Carter, to the fantastical journey chronicled in Space Jam. Well, the first one, the first one. Uh, These films have had opportunities to portray the the trials, the triumphs, and the unbreakable bonds forged on the basketball court. You know, they've given audiences glimpses, shown them that basketball is more than a game. It's a conduit for human emotion, a canvas for personal growth, and a testament to the soul of the game. But... There's so much more to explore, a lot more meat left on the bone. And some would say that Hollywood has yet to get it right. You know, basketball doesn't have its field of dreams, although some would put Hoosiers in that category. You know, basketball doesn't have its slap shot or Rocky as hockey and boxing can boast. It has its classics, like the aforementioned titles, 
Plus, I want to include He Got Game above the rim. You know, maybe the greatest depiction of the game in movie history, Hoop Dreams. But these films are at least 20 years old. In fact, there are only four films made in the last 10 years that would be categorized within the basketball genre. Space Jam, The New Legacy, Uncle Drew, Hustle, and White Man Can't Jump. The remake, of course. But it seems like Hollywood's moved on, or at least it's tried to. And based on the financial performance of basketball films, I don't really blame them. You know, if you look at the top five highest grossing basketball films of all time, you might be surprised at how much money they made at the theaters domestically. You know, Space Jam is number one, but grossed a lifetime total of $90 million. The original White Man Can't Jump is second with $76 million. Space Jam, A New Legacy, is third with $70 million. Coach Carter is fourth with $67 million. And Like Mike is the fifth highest grossing basketball movie of all time. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did you just say to me? Like Mike, starring Lil Bow Wow. Yeah, that one. (laughs) Anyway, on the surface, those are big numbers, impressive within the microcosm of basketball. But let's put this into perspective. As a collective genre, basketball films have grossed a lifetime total of $814 million domestically. Again, not too bad in a vacuum. However, if you compare the box office performance of the genre to another sport, let's say say baseball, you'll start to see how mid-basketball really is as a genre. And mid would be a bit of an exaggeration. I think I'm boosting that a little bit. With 48 films in its category, baseball has grossed a lifetime total of $1.18 billion. And this is nowhere close to the top grossing genres like, say, for example, adventure movies, which sits at $71 billion, or Marvel and DC superhero films, which have grossed about $26 billion, and there's animation at $32 billion. So with numbers like that, why would Hollywood scrape the bottom of the barrel and make basketball movies? I'm going to answer that question after I take a quick break. We'll be right back with more High and Low. This episode is all about Hollywood and basketball, two things that I consider to be passions of mine. I left you with a question just before the break. Why would movie studios bother with basketball? You know, I shared the numbers. They're not great. You know, why scrape the bottom of the barrel? Well, Hollywood, the movie industry, it's hit a bit of a wall. Adaptations, sequels, remakes, they've all ruled the roost for years. But box office numbers are dwindling as people watch more movies on streaming services The other day, I watched a guy watch Spider-Man on his phone the other day at 8.30 in the morning. And he's watching one of the biggest movies of the year on a little screen. Crush my soul. (laughs) Anyway, the last several months have seen films from seemingly rich IP. And when I say IP, I'm referring to intellectual property, like the original source. They've consistently fallen short of their targets. Ant-Man, The Flash. Uh, Shazam, you know, all flops based on box office projections. 
the rationale has been superhero fatigue. You know, so of course Hollywood starts scraping the other corners of culture like video games and toys. You know, Super Mario Brothers is a top grossing film of the year. You know, you got Barbie, which outperformed a Christopher Nolan movie on its opening weekend. You know, the same guy that brought us The Dark Knight and Inception. That's a big surprise. As a result, people at Nintendo are busy working with the film studios to expand the Super Mario Brothers universe. And you got Mattel. They've opened their doors and toy boxes to filmmakers, giving them every opportunity to pitch film ideas for other toys besides Barbies. Hollywood is desperate for intellectual property. Movie studios, they want built-in brands, known commodities that can bring in an audience and bring those audiences in droves to the theaters. And the NBA is all about branding and known commodities. There are so many personalities and elements of the game that can be integrated into stories told on screen. The possibilities really are endless if you think about it. You know, perfect example, Oscar-nominated film Uncut Gems by the Safdie brothers. Love that. Not a basketball movie by any stretch, but very much grounded in NBA lore. You know, there's a Celtics playoff game and a championship ring at the heart of the tension in this film. Plus a great performance by Kevin Garnett. Actually, let me say a very good performance by KG. <laughs> and everyone I know who loves basketball and watched this movie, they loved it. They loved that film. In fact, critics love the film. The Academy loved the film. Uh, and it didn't need to center the story around the actual game itself. It was on the periphery, in the background. You know, it was the base, but not the icing. Smart writing. Now, Spike Lee, he came close with He Got Game. It was more of a family drama than basketball movie. You know, Denzel Washington was a force of nature as the father of the protagonist. Rosaria Dawson killed it as per usual. She's always flawless. But Ray Allen, as Jesus Shuttlesworth, uh, the the protagonist, the hero in the film, was an abomination, an abomination. You know, his acting made me cringe from beginning to end. Uh, but Rick Fox, who was playing for the Los Angeles Lakers, the Lakers of Los Angeles at the time, was amazing in his cameo. That was actually a pretty big shock to me. Um, but Ray Allen. Man, took me out. He took me out of that film. So close, Spike. So close. But now that I'm thinking about it, I think it was more Denzel's film than anything. I think Denzel is your protagonist. He's your anti-hero in that film. Uh, but hey, I'm just speaking in real time. Um, let me backtrack a little, though. I just want to amend my argument a bit because there are basketball movies being made. Some. But... They're still far and few between, and they're going straight to streaming services when they do. And let's be honest, that's equivalent to a made-for-TV movie. You know, small budgets, no fanfare, a placeholder with no priority. Uh, and I don't want that for the game. You know, I prefer big-budget tentpole films or critically acclaimed prestige type of films. The opportunity is there. You know, you got LeBron James and Maverick Carter. They've produced several projects under their Spring Hill banner, including Hustle and Space Jam. There is opportunity, and perhaps that could be the next frontier for the NBA. You know, the league partnering with A24, for example, or Adam Silver meeting with Paul Thomas Anderson or Christopher Nolan or Ari Aster to comb through their archives for stories similar to the ones I share on our history segment, for example. You know, just as the NBA has an investment arm, they should consider an entertainment arm that could 
rival Marvel Studios, for example. What did you say? You know what? As soon as I said that, I realized that is a ridiculous statement to make out loud. So forget I said that. Maybe not Marvel. Sometimes I go a little too far. But anyway, I know it's not as easy as I'm making it sound right now. The film industry is going through a huge transformation right now, transitioning from the traditional theatrical model to a digital landscape. And there have been growing pains, to say the least. Wall Street has corrected its confidence in the digital model. It's adjusted its faith. Uh, And as a result, the money pit that has been full to the brim for such a long time, well, it's, it's not as deep as it used to be. And what does that mean for film studios? means less money, less money to spend on product, talent, ideas. And we're seeing the cutbacks, the layoffs everywhere due to this market correction. You got Warner Discovery. They've had to cut back across the board. They're billions of dollars in debt. Disney's cutting back. Actually, Disney's cutbacks have directly affected the NBA through ESPN. Uh, we saw reports of many of our favorite ESPN personalities being fired. You know, Jeff Van Gundy, Jalen Rose. So it would be a challenge for the NBA to propose such a bold idea, but the potential is there. It would be entertaining and it could be quite lucrative for both parties involved. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. With all this talk about film movies, I don't want to leave out television. TV has had its fair share of love affairs with the NBA, with basketball from the critically acclaimed drama, The White Shadow, to the comedic genius of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, to more recent endeavors such as HBO's Winning Time, basketball has been able to find its way into the fabric of our television landscape. These shows not only entertain, but also explore the social dynamics, racial tensions, and personal struggles that intersect with the game we hold near and dear. Now, I won't go into the details of the television industry and the NBA and all the possibilities. I'll leave that for a future episode. I want to give it its own space. For now, I'll say this. We stand at this critical juncture with a new horizon awaiting us. The NBA, with its rich tapestry of stories and characters, can be a coveted source of intellectual property for film studios. You know, we can envision a future where the journeys of basketball heroes and villains grace the big screen with a newfound intensity, their narratives amplified by the cinematic language that captivates audiences around the globe every year. It's there for the taking. It's right there. And I only ask for 10%, Adam. That's it. 10%. Easy. (laughs) Why the f*** I can't shoot three-point shots? That brings us to the end of this episode of High and Low. Make sure to subscribe to High and Low anywhere you find podcasts and make us a part of your weekly routine. You know where to find us. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. We're on threads and, of course, YouTube. Links to those are on the show notes. Once again, music is by Live of the Enjoy Music Group. You can find Live on Twitter and on Instagram and probably on threads at L-Y-V-E. Additional music is by Sonny Rockwell of The Goodness. Sound design is by Vaughn August. This is a Vaughn Abraham podcast, just in case you didn't know. I'm Ike Amechi. Thank you for listening to High and Low. We'll talk to you next week.